listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured Episode 211. In this episode, we're talking about how unions can adapt to 21st century capitalism with Alice Martin and Annie Quick, authors of Unions Renewed, Building Power in an Age of Finance. But first, the news. This holiday season will be a grim time for many families, especially for loved ones who are isolated from each other by the pandemic. And for the workers who care for people in nursing homes, the staff are often the patient's only companions. So when the workers at a chain of nursing homes in the Chicago area went on strike just a few days ahead of Thanksgiving weekend, it was a sign of just how serious the situation had gotten at the Infinity Healthcare Management Facilities. The workers, who are represented by SEIU Healthcare Illinois, are on a 10-day strike, demanding decent working conditions, including $2 per hour in hazard pay, a higher base wage for employees to be competitive with other local nursing homes, and adequate supplies of personal protective equipment. Rosalind Reggins, who has worked for the past 15 years at the Lakeview Nursing and Rehab Center, says she and about 700 of her co-workers walked off the job because they are tired of working for poverty wages. For their part, the nursing home industry argues that it has been overwhelmed by COVID-19 and is suffering from low Medicaid reimbursements and supply chain issues. But workers like Rosalind Reggins say they are only asking to be paid fairly for the work and the hardship and the emotional toll that they have taken on. As a cancer survivor who is herself in a high-risk category for COVID-19, Reggins talked about the struggles of nursing home staff as they cope with the COVID-19 outbreak, both among the people they care for and in the workforce itself. I've been working at Lakeview for 15 years, and this is the worst that it has ever been um, with the COVID and all, and it's very challenging right now. Um, we're striking right now. We, that's the last thing we wanted to do, but we, we resulted to striking because we couldn't reach an agreement with one of the owners. And um, I think we had maybe five or six bargaining sessions and he wouldn't give us what we were asking for. So the last result was to strike. Um, we're very short staffed right now. Uh, even before the pandemic, we were short staffed and even more so now. Um, and we're that short because of the wages that they're paying. Everybody else around the city of Chicago was making fifteen and fifteen fifty an hour. They're still making, bringing them in at thirteen thirty an hour. Um, I only make seventeen thirty five, and I've been there fifteen years. And the reason I stay there so long, and I won't go and look for another job because I know I can and get paid more by my experience. But I have grown so attached to my residents, and they've grown attached to me. Um. I have my own health issues. I'm a cancer survivor, three-year cancer survivor. Um, and my immune system is very compromised still. Um, I still go to the oncologist. I still have CAT scans. Um, and it's just sad that it had to come to this because he got $12.7 million from the federal government and he refused to give us any of it. And he got that off the sweat of us, our hard labor. So it's, it's very challenging. Um, some of our residents, we're the only family that they know. And we lost a lot to COVID. 
and losing them was like losing family members. It impacted all of us. Um, the COVID pay that we were getting, um, it started, it, well, we were getting $200 a pay period for the COVID. And for full-time, part-time was getting 150 In July, he stopped it because at that time, we didn't have any COVID patients in the building. And it was under contingency that you didn't call off. If you called off, you forfeited your COVID pay. So, I mean, it, it, it's, it's really sad, and I hate that it had to come to this. But unfortunately, we're here. And, uh, I mean, what else could we do? Um, I haven't lost any coworkers due to COVID, but a lot of them have had it. And some most recently. And again, we have COVID residents in the building now. You know, it goes back and forth. One minute, one week you might not have any. The next week you might have five or six. And I think he, he should have kept the COVID pay going until at least the pandemic was over with. But he chose not to for whatever reason. Um, so we're here. And we're also asking, you know, for our COVID payback. And it should not be stipulations that if you call off, you forfeit the COVID pay. You might be sick, you know, you might be tired from working, you know, short. I've had as many as, just me alone, I've had as many as 24 residents by myself. You cannot give quality care when you have that many residents. It's impossible. You can be the best DNA in the world, but you cannot give quality care to 24, 23 residents. It's impossible. So I just think it's a sad thing that uh, we're here today. I never thought it would come to this, but we're here and we're going to stick it out until he come around and give us the $2 that we're asking for. So you you currently don't receive hazard pay? Is that right? Nope. Currently, we do not. In terms of the short staffing, how does that affect your your work are you needing to fill in for other people like work extra hours or is it just like everyone has a bigger workload or what it's it's it's, um all of the above me myself personally i try not to work a lot of doubles because of my health issues um but from time to time i do because i hate to see my co-workers struggle and it's like if he if he raised the minimum wage to fifteen fifteen dollars an hour, we wouldn't be short staff. Um, I'm a supervisor there, and on occasions I have interviewed CNAs, potential CNAs. And when they found out how much the pay was, it was like, sorry, uh, I can go down the street and make fifteen dollars, and it's true. So until he bring that minimum wage up. We're going to always be short because, again, why would somebody come and work for $13 an hour when they can go somewhere else and make 15 15 50 A lot of people are going to be spending the holidays with relatives in nursing homes that they can't visit, and they may not know what the workers at those places go through. So do you have a, a message that you want people to, to know about uh, the kind of stuff you experience at work every day? 
Absolutely. Um, what I would want people to know is that our jobs are very, very, very hard. There's nothing easy about being a CNA. And you have to have compassion and, a, to me, a calling to do this type of work. I don't do it just for a paycheck. I do it because I love what I do. And I would say to family members, you know, call these owners up and let them know that you have loved ones in these homes, in these infinity homes. And just like they love their family, talking about infinity, these people love their family. And they deserve better than what they're getting. They do. They absolutely do. They deserve more. We do, too. Are you hopeful that uh, the management will come around? I am. You know, in the back, somewhere deep down inside, I'm hopeful. Because it's so much media. I mean, this company is all over every major channel in Chicago. So, you know, we're getting our stories out there, you know, and we're showing what a terrible, terrible company this is, you know? And we got state legislators. We got Bernie Sanders. We got Chuy Garcia. We got a lot of backing, you know? We got a lot of people behind us. So I'm pretty optimistic that he's going to come around. It might not be tomorrow, but I think before the 10 days is up, he'll come around. I'm very hopeful. That was Rosalind Reagans of SEIU Healthcare, Illinois. As COVID cases rise and businesses close, we haven't forgotten the essential workers who never stopped going in to do the work that allows everything else to keep functioning. Last week, I checked in with some of those essential workers, laundry workers at Unitex in Perth Amboy, New Jersey, who held a two-day strike on November 18th and 19th. I spoke with Monica Vasquez, a shop steward and member of the bargaining team, and also with Alberto Arroyo, co-manager of the Laundry Distribution and Food Service Joint Board of Workers United SEIU. I was working about like 10 years. I just like about three to four years, and I work in on production everywhere. I uh, don't have any place specifically. And now we are just um, doing the try because we don't want the 401k for the new ones because mm-hmm. we think, uh, everybody is the same, and we mm-hmm. want for everybody the same benefits like we have. So give you a little history. Back mm-hmm. in November, what we call the New York Master contract, which mm-hmm. cover other employers, other industrial laundry, uh, but also include two Unitexes in Mount Vernon, New York. And the proposal by the company, those negotiations was, we want to eliminate the pension benefits for existing employees mm-hmm. uh, and, 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 um, and let's do a 401k for everyone. Mm-hmm. Employee says, no, don't play with our pension. And they put a fight. They fought hard. The mayor de Blasio in the city got involved. 1199, President George Gresham got involved and others. Employer back off because they know that the workers were ready to go out. Mm-hmm. And he backed off from that. Now, New Jersey contract expired here in March 2020. We mm-hmm. expanded. We expanded to July due to the pandemic. We started negotiations right. around, July, around August. To find out that now they came 
with the same goal, uh, uh, destroy the pension benefits with a new new strategy, which is you don't have to worry, current employees, this is not for you. This is for new hires only. Mm-hmm. And the employees know they're not stupid. They might be poor, but they are not stupid. They know, everyone that everyone know here, they do want to destroy this pension um, because you you don't want the responsibility moving forward. You want to pass the responsibility of a, a, a private uh, 401k account for individuals. And, um, and the workers know the risk of doing that because they know the goal is to eliminate the pension. And they know that if they agree to, to a language like that, he mm-hmm. is going to start terminating current employees because that's the only way he's going to be able to uh, eliminate the pension benefit. Yeah. And so you guys do laundry for um, hospitals and other places that are dealing with the pandemic, right? Yeah. We don't stop any day because we are, uh, um, are you saying indispensable? I don't know. Essential work. Indispensable. Indispensable is also true. <laughs> Both of those things are true. Um, yeah. So working, some mm-hmm. people were sick, but we're still here, and mm-hmm. we don't have any bonus, nothing, just one thank you. And, and that's it. We just fight for, for our benefits. So no hazard pay or anything? No. No. Um, And so the company also doesn't want to do basic protections like face masks and social distancing at work? When the pandemic started around, I would say, April, the employer contacted the union uh, to protect the workers and to play safe with the pandemic on the union rep uh, not to go inside the premises anymore. Knowing yeah. that we have no language of union visitation, uh, we mm-hmm. talk to our partners and we are, we, how can we fight about this? This is, it's about protecting everyone. We want the union visitation rights back in place. But then as soon as he find out that the other union reps in the three states, Connecticut, New York, and New Jersey, we started mm-hmm. getting thoughts about the behavior of the employer and what they did or didn't do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the employer right away tried to shut down the doors again, and this time they don't want the union to be on the shaft floor to witness. Right, uh, right, of course. So then, so because of that, then the committee wanted in writing out of the contract a COVID-19 protection for them, and we request information in writing. We request, we send an information request for us to be able to develop a, uh, a responsible um, COVID-19 proposal. And I, I'll mm-hmm. give you a example uh, of, of what the company re- uh, responded in writing to us about, about this uh, request. For yeah. example, so what was the protocol for drivers when they service the nursing homes and the hospital? And what's the protocol when they come back from the customers to the laundry and walk around the entire laundry where all the productions are working all day? The company responded, "Oh, we don't, we don't remember because that that it's been a few months already. I don't, I don't, re, I don't recall. Uh, we we request what was the protocol to inform 
the workers, when someone calls sick, when someone left the premises sick, when someone calls to make the announcement that I test positive, I don't remember what we did. Because yeah. they know that they respond, whatever they respond, the workers, the workers know is is a lie, and uh, yeah. and this is he didn't want to respond to another. We respond about six feet distance, and he says we don't know because we haven't measured. Excuse me, March. <laughs> you said to yeah. us, I have to measure the distance from from worker to worker in the facility. So anyway, let's go to to the last bargaining session, which was October 14, 2020, came without written proposal, COVID-19, mm -hmm. and he responded in 15 minutes. He left the room, came back with a piece of paper in writing, and he responded no to all the proposals of COVID-19. Then at the end, he asked mm -hmm. no to this proposal, these proposals cost money to our company. So he he put money before health and safety of these employees, their families, their town, the state, and that that's that is the employer that they uh, we are dealing with. Yeah. Um. So you said some some of the workers have gotten sick. Yes. Either we don't know. We're not sure yeah. because they don't want to share with us. Mm -hmm. We know because sometimes you know. We know the people, and we know that they may be sick because we're not 100% uh, sure mm -hmm. because they don't want to give that information to nobody, yeah. not either to protect us. And so the strike is for two days, right? Yes. And then what happens? Uh, we're just waiting and see what is happening. That was Monica Vasquez, a Unitex laundry worker, and Alberto Arroyo of the Laundry Distribution and Food Service Joint Board Workers United SEIU. It shouldn't surprise anyone that the economic impact of the pandemic has fallen hardest on the workers who are the most vulnerable to begin with, but the suffering that the pandemic has inflicted on migrant workers in the Gulf states is on an unfathomable level. According to a new report by the research firm Equidem, migrant laborers in Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and Qatar have suffered massive levels of wage theft, discrimination, and abuse due to the disruption of major building and infrastructure projects amid the economic downturn caused by COVID-19. The researchers found that, quote, even some of the largest businesses in the region are guilty of practices that amount to discrimination, modern slavery, or labor exploitation with regard to workers in their supply chain, unquote. These are not new problems, of course. Modern-day slavery is virtually an open secret in the oil-rich Gulf nations, where imported migrants from South and Southeast Asia are routinely used to fill the low-wage jobs that the relatively affluent native population will not do. COVID-19 is amplifying a long-standing human rights crisis. These workers were precariously employed to begin with. They've labored under extremely restrictive contracts that essentially indenture them to firms that operate with little oversight or regulation. But the pandemic has led to mass layoffs, leaving people broke, stranded, and in some cases, sick with the coronavirus. In the case of the Dubai Expo mega project, researchers report workers, quote, lost jobs with little or no notice, with salaries and benefits for work already undertaken yet to be paid. Many of these workers were put on a plane and sent home, while others languish in basic crowded worker accommodation camps without pay and far from their families, unquote. 
Some workers have reportedly fallen ill with COVID-19 and been denied adequate medical treatment and even died as a result. Not to mention, physical distancing at these work sites, which are often big construction zones, is in many cases basically impossible. The report concludes that while the governments of these Gulf nations have policies on paper that provide some labor protections and health care for migrants, these regulations are widely flouted by employers. So workers continue to be subjected to coercion, dismal housing and food provisions, physical abuse, psychological despair, and woefully inadequate sick leave policies. The study also found that workers are being systematically denied the right to unionize, and without freedom of association, there is no way to hold their employers accountable for protecting their basic welfare. That is kind of the point of using so much migrant labor, after all. These are people who are categorically excluded from the legal protections afforded to citizens. I spoke with Mustafa Kadri, executive director of Equidem, about how the pandemic has deepened longstanding labor abuses and exploitation in this permanent underclass of workers. We were able to get this really intimate picture and unparalleled access to workers in, you know, places like Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates. These are not easy places to do any kind of human rights work. And what we found was that after speaking to over 200 workers, that workers were being subjected to racial discrimination, to situations of modern slavery and forced labor, and also that workers were in a severe psychosocial distress, meaning basically that they faced significant anxiety because of fear of the virus, plus also the impact that would have on their earning capacity. Many of these workers have dependents as well. And you had many cases where, in fact, workers were committing suicide or contemplating that and basically left in complete destitution whilst the governments and businesses of this region made sure that nationals and um, others who are, you know, may not be nationals but were of high value to them were protected. That was an excerpt from my conversation with Mustafa Kadri of Equidem. You can hear a longer version of that interview at our Patreon. You can sign up to support us at patreon.com slash belabored where we'll be posting a longer version of this as a special bonus episode for our supporters next week. In what the soon-to-be president might once have called a BFD, the North American building trades have signed a major agreement to train workers for offshore wind power work. A memorandum of understanding between NABTU and Danish renewable energy group Orsted, I may not be pronouncing that right, I'm sorry, to the Danish, will train workers to build what Reuters, well, kind of unfortunately called the firm's pipeline of projects down the U.S. East Coast. Leaving aside the unfortunate choice of metaphor, this is a big development. Reuters noted, quote, The Memorandum of Understanding aims to create a model for the nascent offshore wind industry in the United States at a time President-elect Joe Biden is promising to usher in a swift transition to renewable energy sources like solar and wind, to fight climate change, end quote. Biden has kind of scoffed at the Green New Deal, and Democrats in a tight Senate, even if Georgia does go their way, are unlikely to push for the kind of radical change that is necessary. But it is worth noting that unions in the trades and elsewhere have been skeptical of the just transition framework, basically because they've been promised many, many times good union jobs in renewable energy, only to see those melt into air. We were, of course, just recently talking about the promises so far unmaterialized of electric truck building jobs at Lordstown after the GM plant there closed. 
that justified skepticism, of course, is not helped by a short-termist next contract outlook that too many U.S. unions have long held and that has often intensified during the you know past few decades period of decline. I am not one to trust CEOs bearing gifts, but here's what the Orsted North America CEO David Hardy told Reuters. We are working to proactively develop a plan to transition organized labor into the offshore industry. We want to work with the NABTU to create a framework for an offshore wind construction workforce for all offshore wind farms we will operate, end quote. Orsted operates America's only utility-scale offshore wind farm off the coast of Rhode Island, according to Reuters, and that project was built with union labor, serving as a sort of beta test for the new agreement, according to Building Trades President Sean McGarvey. He further said, quote, This will show how, as we move and transform our energy production in North America, it can be done at middle-class wages and good benefits packages. Anything else is not acceptable, end quote. It will all, of course, remain to be seen whether this deal will go the way of other promises, but it's a good sign from all sides to see this kind of planning for a green transition getting started with or without any pressure from Congress or the White House. Now that the election is over, we can think about the future. One of the biggest challenges, or rather quite a few of the biggest challenges for organized labor on both sides of the Atlantic, has been the question of how to adapt to a financialized economy, a fissured workplace, and a capitalism that would like to get along with as few workers as possible. Alice Martin and Annie Quick are the co-authors of a new book, Unions Renewed, Building Power in an Age of Finance, that takes up that very question in depth from the position not just of thinkers and finance analysts, but of organizers. We sat down for a conversation recently to talk about their book and their ideas for a future for the labor movement. A quick note that this interview was recorded before the U.S. election, though I think there is absolutely nothing dated about it. Hi, I'm Alice Martin, and I work advising shareholders on on labour rights and labour risks issues, uh, and I'm a co-author of Unions Renewed, which I think we're going to be discussing today. Hello, um, I am Annie Quick, um, and I'm a trade union organiser working for the IWGB, which is one of the smaller trade unions here in the UK, um, working in the area of care. Excellent. So you have written this book that is about how unions can renew themselves in a uh, financialized capitalist economy. And so I wanted to start because there's a story that you tell right at the beginning of the book that I didn't know. And I thought I knew all of the horrifying things that specifically Walmart had done to its workers. But it's a story about Walmart taking out life insurance policies on its employees and how this helps avoid taxes. And while this is not a a process that is ongoing, I still just, I feel like I need to ask you to talk about this a little bit because it's horrifying and it, I think, sets up your book really well. Yeah, horrifying is exactly the right word. I mean, this is the kind of really grim um, side of all of this stuff. So um, so it's a practice called dead dead peasants in insurance. And I think the name kind of gives away how grim it is. Um, And it was particularly prominent in the 1990s. And it basically involves employers taking out life insurance on workers, normally without their knowledge. Um, and, And what that means is that effectively if a worker passes away, then their relatives find out that their employer is suddenly cashing in to tens of thousands of dollars often on, 
literally on the death of their loved one, um, whereas whereas they probably don't get a penny unless they have life insurance themselves. Um, and companies like Walmart, um, together they spent sort of uh, over $8 billion on these kinds of schemes. Um, and it's, it's kind of the reason that we open with it is that it really um, kind of illustrates the way in which finance capital is finding more and more creative ways to make money off us as workers. Um, so in this situation, with Walmart isn't just making money off the work that workers would do and the productive um, capacity that that involves. They're actually using workers as assets to speculate on. I want to ask you, a lot of our listeners are probably familiar with some of this history, but just to sort of give us a brief history of the deregulation that led to the financialized economy that we have now. Like this could be like very brief history, but um, <laughs> just to set up the things we're going to talk about for the rest of the show. Sure. So if, if we think, first of all, if we think of financialization and sort of finance capitalism as um, a sort of trend towards the increased size and influence of finance sector. And by that, we mean not just things like currency trading and stock market trading, the kind of things that you the images you might get when you say finance, but also um, a whole load of other parts of our economy. So banking, insurance and real estate. So those things have existed for hundreds of years. Right. And particularly in the UK, finance is a very dominant part of our economy and has always been quite dominant because in particular because of our history of colonialism and imperialism um, and the way that sort of finance came out of a lot of that. Um, but it's really sort of grown to prominence, particularly in the 1980s, as you say, particularly sort of as part of a deregulation agenda. So as part of a sort of neoliberal shift towards deregulating um, uh, the finance industry. And there was various different sort of deregulations to mean that um, uh, banks and uh, finance capital had more freedom about what they were able to do. And as a result, the, the influence and the size of that part of the economy has grown and grown since the 1980s, which is why economists have come up with this term called financialization. But as I say, I think it's really important not to think of this as sort of a sector of the economy, which is over there. Financialization is about um, is about the influence of finance of in so many areas of our everyday economic lives. So the financialization of the um, housing market is the reason that so many people are struggling to get onto the housing ladder and that our rents are so high. Um, the role of debt and sort of the predatory loan system mean that many of us are sort of ending up living off payday loans more than we are able to live off our wages. There's all sorts of ways in which finance is affecting kind of every part of the economy. Yeah, and I think we're really keen to kind of push the fact that we don't think these are separate worlds, as Annie says. So it's not the case of this good old world of, you know, graft and manufacturing where we all made things and sold them and we were all really happy versus this new bad world of kind of financial trading. But in fact, the two are embroiled and, you know, historically have been embroiled. But the case now is that the process of making money from from different types of financial engineering happens in, in more areas of our lives and also in in the industries in our economy as well. Um, so something we, we talk a bit about in the book is, is well, maybe we'll talk about some of the financialized sectors a bit later on. So care is one of the examples that we cover, um, but also how the finance, the finance sector kind of profits from an erosion of workers' rights. And Uber and the kind of Uber models is quite a good example of this. Um, so you know, where, where we have a situation where workers' rights are eroded, whether because of endemic low wages or a lack of holiday or sick pay, then there's a, a kind of space opened up for 
for financialization to happen. So in the case of Uber, we've got workers taking out loans to buy their cars. So their kind of means of production, their means of working, their cars, they take out loans. They then begin their work in debt. So they're having to earn wages to pay off that debt and to pay interest um, on that debt, which then goes to the bank. They also then have to pay a form of rent just to use the Uber app. So a form of rent to the the company so that the company is in, in a way sort of rent seeking from them as well as treating them like workers. And then the fact that they don't have holiday and sick pay means they have to rely on financial products really to cover their income if they get ill. So that might be yeah, loans, payday loans, insurance products, and companies themselves are kind of profiting off that negligence that they've taken, that position of negligence. Um, so in the case of Uber, you know, they've actually designed their own insurance products and sold them back to Uber drivers to cover their backs when when they need to take time off. Um, so that we kind of cover some examples in the book like this to try and show that, you know, financialization is not this kind of lofty concept up there, but actually we're all kind of living through it. We're embroiled in it in our in our daily lives and in our work. Yeah. Since you mentioned the care sector, I think um, it'd be interesting to talk about that as another example, because it's um, you you write about this particular company that's sort of worldwide. And we think about care as something that's provided more close to home. We kind of spotlight carers, um, with care in the kind of expanded sense. So talking about um, care homes, uh, elderly care, different forms of social care, foster care, even and child care. Um, and there are a couple of examples in the book of, of different care companies that have um, become heavily financialized. And as a result, workers have been really disempowered. So we cover an example of ABC Learning, which is a childcare company over in Australia. It was the, the biggest childcare provider. And um, over a decade ago, it got into some serious trouble due to the fact it was basically taking on so much debt. Um, it had become completely loaded with debt, partly um, through its plans to acquire as much real estate as it could. So often sites of care, so the buildings in which care happens, whether it's nurseries or or care homes, often those those sites, those those that property is it's highly valuable um, because it is you know, in our in our city centres, in areas maybe where there's there's rising land values, but also because the service that exists in those sites is a social need. You know, it's something that is always going to be valuable. There's always going to be demand for it, and in fact, there's increasing demand for things like childcare and and elderly care at the moment. So we have these companies that are kind of getting involved in these sectors to try and turn a profit off and off that that real estate. And when it all comes crumbling down, it's the workers that that are kind of left destitute. And in this example, um, the Australian government actually had to step in and uh, bail out out ABC Learning just to keep the nursery doors open because it was essentially too big to fail. Um, And we talk about that as an example where maybe there could have been an opportunity had workers have been better organized in that sector and unions had been more involved in that sector there could have been an opportunity to sort of use it as a moment to transform the ownership of, of child care and maybe move it away from these privatized financialized models and introduce more public ownership and even some cooperative ownership as well um, but we do we do also talk about kind of elderly care and and um, in the UK in particular, well, I know this is the case in the States as well, but I've been looking into the UK most recently. Um, many of our elderly care homes, the, you know, the biggest providers here in the UK are actually owned by private equity companies. So around 13% of our care sector in the UK is owned by private equity now. Um, and that is a model that we think is particularly problematic for union organising. 
And there's various ways in which sort of having more um, intensely financialized sectors makes union organizing harder. So in the case of um, uh, financialized care, we're seeing obviously increased outsourcing. So more and more of that is being delivered um, either directly in the private sector or indirectly. It's sort of subcontracted out from the public sector to, to the private sector. And as workers, that poses um, sort of initially quite a practical challenge of trying to identify uh, who your boss is and and who ultimately is, is profiting from your labour. Um, and so often there's quite a job to do of sort of following the money and trying to work out what that is. Um, but, but there's a particular challenge as well in, in the dominance of private equity um, uh, in the care sector and in many of these sectors. So, um, so if you look at um, private equity, they're a sort of financial firm and they've got a very specific business model, which is to um, invest, take a majority stake in, in a company. And often it's a company that is failing, but not always um, to, to take a majority um, stake in a company and to run that company for a period of, of, of a number of years. But instead of using that time to invest in um, improving productivity, improving services, improving profitability, they effectively um, try to extract as much wealth as they can out of that um, company during that period of time. And if by the end of that, that, that company is no longer able to operate because it's been so gutted financially, then it doesn't matter to the private equity company because they just sell it on. And then so repeatedly what we see is private equity companies selling on a business and then they go bankrupt sort of a year later. And that's a real, if you imagine being a worker in one of those um, organizations and one of those businesses, if you think of the, the fundamental power that, um, that labor organizing is based on, the, the sort of the power of a strike, it is the premise that they need us. They need us to work in order to, to make a profit. So they need us more than we need them. And if we come together, we ultimately have that power. Now, that power is fundamentally und undermined if your ultimate boss doesn't care. <laughs> you know, if, if you can't threaten a boss by saying you're going to go bankrupt, if their entire business model is based on going bankrupt. So this creates real challenges and tensions in the kind of traditional uh, union kind of model. And it's not to say that they're not overcomable, but it's we need to be um, thinking hard and be very creative about how we respond to this kind of financialization in the workplace. Right. I mean, we saw this and we talked about this on this show with the GM strike even. And GM does still produce cars, but also it produces, um, you note in the book, a whole lot of other things besides. And so between outsourcing and miscellaneous other strategies for producing profits, yeah, it's hard to strike to keep a plant open. Although GM is a great example, because G one of the things that GM does is offer loans. Um, and so actually, that brings us on to one of the solutions, which is to say, OK, fine, you guys as sort of um, wealth owners, um, as capital, are finding new ways to extract money from us through, um, sorry, not new ways, but you're extending the ways or kind of intensifying the way that you're extracting money from us through um, loans and rents and all the rest of it. So rather than just organizing at work, we, we can be expanding into organizing and resisting oppression in those other areas. So um, in the case of GM, um, you know, if we had had a very organized um, debtors, if GM debtors had been very organized at that point, um, we could have, for example, run a parallel um, debt strike during the, the GM strike. And imagine the power that that would have had. So all of those people who GM rely on to extract wealth 
could have been working in unison at that moment. And that's the kind of thing we're not we're not there yet. But that's the kind of thinking that I think we need to be having as a as a labor movement. Yeah, absolutely. You write about something that you call the sectoral trap um, and the way that a lot of the workers these days are concentrated in fields that don't produce a lot of profits, whereas the fields that are producing a lot of profits are relying on fewer and fewer workers. I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit. Um, I'm, of course, thinking about the GM strike versus the Chicago teachers strike, the second one that happened at about the same time. And the difference in success that we're seeing in the U.S. in particular with public sector workers versus private sector workers. Absolutely. Um, So, yeah, so the sector trap is very interesting. It was actually um, uh, sort of identified and named by John Bowen, who's a union organiser on your side of the pond. Um, And he basically identified a bit of a paradox, which is that if you say, okay, where are workers operational in the U.S.? Which which sectors do we have the most workers? And they tend, as a general rule, not in every case, but as a general rule, they tend to be concentrated in sectors which are relatively low profit. So things like um, education, care, retail, these are sectors with a high number of workers. Whereas if you look at where the real profits are being made, they tend to be in sectors with relatively low number of workers. So finance, um, real estate, insurance. So the implications of that are massive, right? <laughs> so what that means is that even if we were doing a brilliant job of organising in all of those low profit um, sectors, even if we were absolutely smashing it, and even if those workers were winning a higher um, slice of the profits in those sectors, we still would be struggling to tackle the kind of runaway inequality that are predominantly being created by these kind of highly financialized sectors like insurance and real estate. And so with the Chicago teachers, um, you had an incredibly effective strike and and not remotely to belittle what they, you know, they, they, they achieved a massive amount in terms of for the teachers and for the students in those areas. But the real runaway inequality was was happening kind of in other parts of the sector um, sorry, in other parts of the economy. Although what we saw with the Chicago teacher strikes, which was very interesting, was that they actually used their their structural power, their leverage to win a load of other things. So, for example, um, uh, sort of particularly um, things around immigration rights and all the rest of it. So it's possible to to use to sort of maximize leverage where we do have it to be able to get wins in other parts of the economy. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, because, again, what we don't want to suggest here is that kind of financialization is happening over there and all the money's being made over there and we're working over here. Actually, that financialization requires us to work, even if it's kind of indirectly, you know, it requires us to be in low paid jobs so that it can sell these other products to us. Or it requires us to be doing the kind of essential work that just needs to happen to keep a society functioning like care. Um, So it's about working out where that leverage exists, even if it's a low profit sector and then using that to kind of target where the money is being made. Um, And I think that's why we end up kind of discussing things like uh, rent organising and debt organising along with kind of workplace organising. You write about the ways that rents are extracted from people in all sorts of ways, whether we're talking about like literal literal rent that is too damn high, um, debt payments, insurance products, all of these things. Um, And back to the dead peasants insurance, right? The way that this both operates as as to turn workers into assets for the company, but also by keeping the workers themselves financially insecure and how that weakens their power in the workplace. Yeah, yeah. And and weakens their power, you know, in the economy at large, because if you're kind of just grateful to have some kind of an income, you're potentially less willing to 
um, put that at risk. And so one of the kind of areas that, that we do discuss as well is um, is looking at ownership, because, you know, if we identify that uh, financialization has kind of transformed where, where the ways that wealth is being created in, in the economy, we need to kind of look seriously at the, the structure and the ownership of the economy overall if we're going to cut this rent-seeking off at its source. You know, we can fight for higher wages and better deals in individual firms, but unless we start looking at the kind of ownership of these firms and sectors, then this model will will persist. Um, so we do talk about kind of national ownership and public ownership and the role of, of unions, obviously, historically and, and in the present day in, in, in trying to... Um, bring more of our economy into into public hands but we also talk about whether there's a role um, for unions in actually catalyzing more direct worker ownership as well um, and I think that's a that's a kind of difficult topic at the moment um, it, during the pandemic you know it's really not something that uh, will be at the top of the agenda for most workers right now and there are huge risks involved in in the idea of, of worker ownership cooperative ownership at the moment given so much of the economy is in tatters uh, but it is something that kind of at least on a theoretical level is a, a model I think that that should be interrogated more by by the union movement. So I want to get back to worker ownership in a little bit but I do want to sort of pull this apart a little bit because you um we talked about the project of deregulation, and of course that came at the same time as these actual attacks on unions and their power under Reagan and Thatcher, um, and how that worked to narrow the the conception of what was possible among unions and among workers. Um, and so now we're sort of stuck with this model of just bargaining for wages and benefits that, again, as you know, is not sufficient to actually change the real inequalities of financial capitalism. Yeah, definitely. I think there's been a process of basically putting unions in a box over the last few decades. Um, certainly in my kind of adult lifetime, unions have been related to uh, as a kind of insurance policy among people that, that are union members um, in many cases. And then as we know, union membership is 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 low at the moment, especially in the private sector, uh, where we have the worst working conditions. And I think it's really important not to look back at um, the periods where, you, you know, the kind of post-war period when unions had much more power and, and had structural power of the economy. I think it's important not to look back at that with rose-tinted glasses um, because there were, you know, tons of issues there. But but actually, I think there is, um, you know, there are elements of, of that structural role that unions used to play that we could kind of reimagine for the present day. So we do talk about sectoral bargaining and we discuss the, the kind of pros and cons of that because I know it's a kind of politically hot topic at the moment, um, less so in the UK with the the kind of um, demise of, of the Corbyn and McDonald project. Um, but that was a project that put sectoral bargaining right at the top of its kind of labour market agenda. And the, the pros of that would be, um, you know, it's a, it's a way of kind of cutting across sectors, getting agreements at a sector level, lifting up the, the pain conditions of, of workers um, where there might be particularly low membership. So this kind of thing could be a game changer for, for sectors like care and hospitality. Um, but the, some of the cons that we talk about as well are the fact that, you know, it's a model that is prone to becoming undemocratic. As I say, it's important not to look back at the kind of post-war uh, period of union power with, with rose-tinted glasses, because actually uh, a number of I suppose the wins that, that were had were, were highly unrepresentative of, of the workforce at large. Um, but I think also 
sectoral bargaining can be weak to political change. And that's something that we should just have at the forefront of our mind at the moment, as we have kind of hostile governments unpicking sectoral models across Europe. Um, So France being one example where, you know, they have um, huge bargaining coverage, thanks to um, strong sectoral bargaining agreements. So around 95% of the workforce are covered by collective bargaining agreements there. Uh, but this is being diluted at the moment by by the Macron government. And because they have low union membership, so membership of around 8% of workers, it's becoming increasingly hard to defend. Um, you know, up to now, the kind of French labour movement have have been able to function really well with low membership because they're so militant. Um, so it doesn't actually mean, you know, if you're not a union member, it doesn't mean you won't come out on strike for something. Um, but I think increasingly they've, you know, they've they've had several political attacks now and, and that, that high bargaining coverage is now being diluted. Yeah, I think also I don't, I promised you we w- I wouldn't make you talk about the American election, but um, <laughs> there's something about also the question of like, okay, with the, the, I hate saying the demise of the Corbyn project, but yeah. And with, you know, Bernie Sanders losing the primary to Joe Biden, um, we are quite used to Democrats, even if they win, disappointing the labor movement in the U.S. So I do also, as you do, caution against thinking too hard about models that require sort of top-down political change. And you note this in the book, right, without a really militant and empowered labor movement to get those changes. Yeah, exactly. So, so kind of winning the model is is only the first step, um, and it's a difficult step as we've seen. See, so we can have these these kind of you know sectoral models or, or whatever it is in in our um, manifestos, but to actually get them into uh, government and get them enacted is is the first step. But once they're there, they're also likely to come under attack from obviously the corporate world that, that is invested in them not existing, and then from hostile governments in the future. So, I think. Um, it's kind of critical to think of how we can build those sort of institutional structural models um, within union organising and and collective bargaining in a way that is democratic and and is always accountable to the grassroots um, and to the kind of rank and file organising that's going on um, in workplaces. And I I think that will be the real challenge. The thing that usually happens here is that the Democrats will make a lot of noise about pro-labor policies and then they will quietly disappear when they get into office. This is what happened with Obama. So, um, I, yeah, I, I, the problem is that like without somebody too, is the old, you know, story about FDR goes, make them do it, which requires unions to be militant and invested in this in the first place. So, you know, chicken or the egg problem. Um, but I do want to spend the last few minutes talking about some of the solutions that you talk about. We've mentioned a few of them so far, but um, yeah, I want to ask you guys to talk a little bit more about some of these things. Like we've we've talked on this podcast before, certainly about like the limitations of things like shareholder activism. But how can we think about these things in a way that is connected to and sort of in conversation with? Shareholder activism should always be considered as a, a kind of means to an end. And I think that it's... Um, an important tool right now, particularly in companies that are financialized, it's a kind of way of, of rank and file members 
learning more and kind of upskilling, swatting up and understanding the the enemy, I suppose, and really being able to trace who follow the money and, and trace, is, trace who is actually sitting behind the decisions that are being made in their workplace. Um, so we think this is a kind of interesting model in relation to kind of private equity and, and some of the problems we were describing earlier, where it's very difficult for for uh, workers and their unions to to really have power if they kind of jump up the the kind of food chain I suppose and identify who's actually profiting from from some of these decisions and in some cases it might not be um the kind of evil big baddies that you expect and it could well be a you know a, a pension fund of a local authority down the road from you is actually indirectly invested in this care home that you're organizing in and I think identifying those links and and those possible points of leverage um are are, are more important now um that we have so many bits of our economy kind of financialized um, but I you know I understand the kind of the drawbacks, and I don't think that shareholder activism should ever be a replacement for kind of workplace organising. Um, but I think the two could work together well. Part of that is again coming back to like really knowing your enemy, and then using whatever you need to do to 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 approach that. So it's it's just it's it's identifying the target, identifying what needs to change, and then using what tools you need to change that, rather than saying we're a union. What we do is workplace negotiation. So that's just what we're going to do. If you know, if you're if you're facing a private equity firm, then you're going to need to do you're going to need to be more creative about that. And that might involve sort of buying up shares. That might involve seeing whether there's you know if it's a financialized firm, seeing if they also have a financial arm where you can organize debtors, seeing if they're also a landlord and you can you know start organizing renters. You know, finance is so nimble and creative and pervasive into all of these different parts of the economy that we need to be ready to react um, uh, in in as many different um, locations and with as many different tactics. Um, and, and again, that, that's that's always been part of sort of our labour union history. That's the kind of social movement unionism and the sort of whole worker organising that people like Jane McAlevey have been talking about for decades. Um, but I think we, it's just um, that real, we're beginning to feel that real revival now, which is just very, yeah, really exciting. Um, and to pick up to something that um, Alice was saying about the need to sort of build those democratic, more democratic unions. You know, it's, it's interesting that if you look around some of the most sort of exciting and dynamic campaigns, they've often been run by um, people who are most marginalised, not only by the economy, but often by their unions. <laughs> so, you know, often women, often people of colour who are um, who are using those tactics because they have to to be able to build power but unfortunately what we see repeatedly is that they have to run a campaign first against their union um, and then against their employer so so you know we're not going to be able to create the kind of major shift towards democracy in our economy unless we really get our houses in order and have seriously sort of transparent and democratic and member-led unions yeah yeah, you keep anticipating things I'm going to ask about because the thing I was going to ask about next is is thinking about housing in the time of the pandemic. This has been sort of the number one thing on a lot of people's minds with like potential eviction crises coming in both of our countries. And um, yeah, so I would love to expand more on that. Like, what is what does it look like to have to think about who is the landlord, but also to think about people's living space as part of their workspace now right like we're seeing more of that than ever before <laughs> yeah literally yeah that's a good point <laughs> but yeah I was just going to say what you know one of the reasons we came to talk about housing um and, and kind of renter organizing 
in the book is is because I think we realised as people living um, in a city like London, where you're experiencing kind of precarity in terms of your work, but also in terms of your housing significantly. And in many ways, I think for for people of our generation, that they're, they're kind of um, their exploitation is experienced as much in the housing market as it is in the workplace. Um, and I think that that's, a, that's an important thing for kind of unions to to get abreast of and, and to, um, yeah, organise around, I suppose. And, and so that's why, why we kind of came to think about it. And then we, we uncovered loads of fantastic collaborations between renters unions and, and uh, trade unions happening. Um, and Annie, yeah, you might want to talk about the kind of bargaining for the common good um, approach that, that we did some research into as well, and that I'm sure US listeners will, will know lots about. It's interesting, actually, because we wrote most of the book before the pandemic hit, right? And so in the early reviews, the drafts, we were kind of really gung- gung-ho about um, uh, de- debt strikes and, and rent strikes and their potential. Um, and one of the responses that we got was like, oh, yeah, but isn't it all a bit unrealistic? Like, <laughs> like people, you know, for, to ask, for people to literally choose not to pay rent when they that literally means that they may not have anywhere to sleep and there's no protections like there is in the workplace and um uh and you know what about their credit rating and all of this stuff and actually what we've seen is uh, a wave of um rent strikes both in the US and and the UK um because it's not a choice and we have to be honest about that people aren't choosing not to pay rent they they cannot pay rent because the way that our governments have responded to coronavirus has has not adequately protected um workers and and so the choice isn't whether or not to pay rent it is um in fact whether to see that fa- that 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 inability to pay rent as a kind of personal failure and something that you have to sort of deal with individually or whether to come together and to organise around that. That's that's for many people. That is the choice that we're facing right now, and um, and and more and more people are choosing the latter. And particularly in, in the UK, particularly we're seeing uh, student rent strikes, where our kind of increasingly privatised um, uh, education system means that people are paying insanely high um, uh, fees to sit in a student hall, sometimes not even sit in them because they haven't gone in the first place, uh, not being able to go to lectures and trying to do lectures on Zoom, you know, and, and, and students are responding to that with a kind of can't pay, won't pay sort of uh, response. So being locked in, right? Exactly. In some of these cases, it's just horror for American listeners who don't know about this. I, I feel like this is a, a bit of a horror show that I don't think I've heard about in the same way in the U.S. Yeah, it's just it's just astonishing. And because we have so many international students as well in the U.K., people are paying unbel- like eye-watering amounts of money for the privilege of um, being associated with some of these kind of big name universities in the U.K. and being, yeah, in in lockdown in a student hall where coronavirus has gone rife and then being demanded to pay kind of London style rents for the privilege. And also being encouraged back in many cases, so encouraged back into into these um, student halls at the point at which the, you know, the pandemic was was worsening again. Um, And some have kind of speculated and and observed the fact that, um, you know, some of the contracts are based on the initial, I think, like 28 day period or some kind of initial period of being in the property. So if you've been in it for those first days, you're liable to pay the rents. And so some have speculated and says, basically, the government's encouraging students back just to back up um the the student halls 
landlords basically so that they can they can get the rent out of these students before the lockdown happens um which is a pretty depressing <laughs> so grim it's so grim the, the pictures <laughs> of just like students holding like signs up to the windows it's just yeah. really like wow um, yeah it gives me sorry random flashbacks to when i was in university um, I was in New Orleans and there was a hurricane coming towards us. And this was before Hurricane Katrina. So like nobody took things very seriously. And so the university's plan was to lock us in the hallway in our residence halls. Oh my God. Yeah, I just, you're just like, wow, they really just don't care if you drown, do they? Um, <laughs> as long as yeah. you get that money for the dorm first. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, anyway, so back to my last question, which is, is yeah, I want to get back to employee ownership plans, the way we can think about these things again in the context of not perhaps having a sympathetic government who is going to enforce this, but ways that, yeah, I mean, it, it, on the one hand, the economy is in tatters and it's horrible for people to try to be thinking about um, trying to own their workplace in this mess, but also like a lot of things are going to be going under and a lot of people are, are getting out of businesses and, and it might weird way be a good time to talk about this too. Yeah, I think I think it's about also identifying the sectors that we really um, want to keep for for kind of societal good and to take back out of the hands of these private owners and and, and then kind of focusing on them. So I think childcare and 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 social care are, are are really good examples of that. And we've seen both of them come under you know significant strain during the pandemic. Um, and there are serious conversations going on even among kind of conservative governments now about. Um, the viability of having these these sectors in private hands. So I think there is an opportunity now to kind of exert more um, collective and, and democratic control over these sectors. And I think what we would kind of support is, yes, public ownership, um, particularly at a time now when when the, the economy is in, in tatters, but public ownership that builds kind of worker democracy and potentially, you know, collective worker ownership into that as well. So in the case of nurseries, it might be that the actual... F- physical premises is owned in in public hands but the management of that that company and the kind of governance and the decisions taken over that are are um are held and carried out by the workers and potentially you know groups of workers and parents in a, in a kind of mutual model as well so i think there are com- kind of combined models of of democratic ownership that involve a role for the state and also for for workers themselves that i think um you know would would be fantastic now public ownership is um it, it ha- I think it has to be where we're aiming for, right? So um, it, it, it's kind of the the antidote to financialization. So if if we live in an economy in which uh, more and more focus is on sweating existing assets and making money off existing assets, then the only way that that is going to work for the majority of people is if those assets are collectively owned. Um, so uh, as Alice said, it's not you know it's a it's a bit of a slow journey, um, but but I think that it, it has to be something that the union movement starts sort of taking seriously. And there's a number of examples in the book where um, you know where workers have attempted to um, to do this, where they attempted to sort of take over or set up um, uh, um, sort of un- un- union focused um, 
cooperatives. So there's an exa- there's great an, a great example in the US um, with um, the Cooperative Care Home Associates. So um, a care a care cooperative in New York, and that's the kind of sector where you might think it's going to be really hard because profits are very low. It's sort of an endemically low paid industry, but actually they um, have uh, phenomenal outcomes um, and much higher um, or substantially higher uh, wages and conditions for workers. So it it really is possible. I think it's about finding uh, ways to transition um, and and sort of working out the role that unions can play in that. You're listening to Belaboured, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And that was Alice Martin and Annie Quick, co-authors of Unions Renewed. And now it's time for ARG. I wish I'd written that. Where we talk about the pieces that we liked, but alas, did not write. My pick for ARG is The Heavy Toll of the Black Belt's Wastewater Crisis by Alexis Okeowo in The New Yorker. In Lowndes County, Alabama, health is a luxury that residents cannot afford. Long before the pandemic afflicted this area, people were suffering from maladies that simply shouldn't exist in the world's wealthiest nation. People are sick because they're poor and poor because they're sick. Okeowo reports on Pamela Rush, a diabetic mother living in a trailer at the intersection of multiple streams of inequity, systemic racism, intergenerational poverty, and an eroded social safety net that exposes poor Black communities to chronic disease, disability, and unnecessary suffering. Even something as basic as a septic tank is out of reach for people living in such deep poverty. But ironically, a lack of basic plumbing and a non-existent public sewage system in this area can serve as a pretext for criminalizing the poor. Okeowa reports, quote, in Alabama, not having a functioning septic system is a criminal misdemeanor. Residents can be fined as much as $500 per citation, evicted, and even arrested, unquote. The authorities seem to be much more efficient at arresting folks for lacking a septic system than they are at actually fixing the public health crisis. Okiola writes, quote, a pastor was arrested because his church lacked a working septic tank. A husband and wife were threatened with arrest because their sewage leaked onto the road, unquote. For many, it costs more to install a septic system for their homes than a whole year's wages. So many here resort to piping raw sewage outside of their homes onto the soil. This arrangement, which is common in impoverished rural communities across the country, means that, quote, floods carry sewage across people's lawns and into their living areas, bringing with it the risk of viruses, bacteria, and parasites that thrive in feces, unquote. As we take this grim tour through layers of hardship and deprivation, which is settled like soot around the Black Belt, we learn that Lowndes County was a focal point for the civil rights movement. The area was known for its ferocious racial violence and the brutal mass displacement of Black residents. These people are descended directly from the enslaved people who once worked the region's vast plantations, and the local white population has forced them to pay dearly for their freedom. Some politicians want to chalk up the situation to, quote, personal responsibility. They blame the residents for the lack of a functioning sewage system and the poverty that plagues their neighborhoods. But according to environmental justice advocate Catherine Flowers, quote, a reason this problem is perpetuated for so long was because they blamed it on poor, ignorant Black people who don't know how to flush a toilet or take care of a septic system. There have been intentional structures put in place, undergirded by racism, to keep the county poor. Not having access to decent housing creates a lot of other kinds of injustices. It creates healthcare disparities. It leads to not having a decent wage, unquote. Like the Flint water crisis, the Lowndes County sewage crisis is a manifestation of generations of corporate abuse. 
Black Belt communities have historically been saddled by pollution coming from landfills or chemical plants or just neglected infrastructure, and they become dumping grounds for the detritus of American industry. This story is a bit outside the usual scope of the ARG category, but in fact, environmental justice issues are fundamentally about the lives of working class people. These industries pollute these communities, fill them with fetid waste and disease and toxic chemicals, but they're also the industries that these regions depend on for jobs. And in some cases, the very same people who work in these factories, plants, mines, and industrial farms are also the folks who are getting dumped on. And to some extent, even residents of these communities, over time, internalize the shame. Flowers noted that often people have been reluctant to talk about their sewage issues because who wants to tell their neighbors that their backyard has become a septic tank? especially if you could be charged with a crime for a problem beyond your control. The long-term health consequences of this crisis, including respiratory problems, hookworm, gastrointestinal diseases, etc., are beginning to stir outrage. Activists around the country are paying attention. Still, politicians seem largely uninterested. One researcher who has been tracking the various environmentally-related symptoms in the Lowndes population told The New Yorker that he had been quote, able to help mobilize hundreds of millions of dollars over the years from USAID to address neglected tropical diseases in Africa and in poor areas of Asia. But when you talk about neglected infections of the poor in America, the lights go out, unquote. It's common to compare poor parts of this country to the so-called third world, because apparently abject poverty belongs far away from the U.S., but not within it. How, in such a wealthy country, can we countenance allowing fellow citizens to live this way? But of course, this kind of inequality is quintessentially American, whether it happens within our borders or outside of them. This year, the global pandemic intersected with the chronic public health hazards looming over Lowndes County. It now has the highest per capita death rate in the state of Alabama. Pamela Rush, who had devoted her life to advocating for a healthier environment for her community, who had testified on Capitol Hill about the plight she faced amid the wastewater crisis, ultimately succumbed to COVID-19. She didn't deserve to die like that, but she also did not deserve to have to live the way that she did. At the same time, it's not a completely tragic story. What was remarkable about Rush's life is that she fought for others as hard as she fought for herself, and she was loved and supported by her community, and people cared for her and encouraged her until her final breath. Lives in the Black Belt matter, in spite of a system that treats them as if they don't. And what this country can't do for them, they do for each other. I wanted to draw your attention to a New York Times piece by Michael Corkery and Sapna Maheshwari titled Virus Cases Rise, But Hazard Pay for Retail Workers Doesn't. Because, of course, we've talked plenty on this podcast about the way retail workers were hailed as heroes in the early days of the pandemic, wooed with hazard pay and bonuses, as well as heaped with praise. But these days, even as those workers continue to take risks to go to work, the bonuses and hazard pay are mostly gone, even, of course, as profits continue to roll in for the big retailers. And those same companies are turning once again to the practice of stock buybacks, which we talked about earlier on today's show, to reward shareholders by inflating the company's stock price rather than paying the people who make their companies run. This piece, in other words, fits in well with the rest of today's episode, where we're talking about essential work and the perils of financialized capitalism. Pardon my dog making disgusting noises in the background. Amazon, Walmart, Kroger, and Lowe's, among others, had either ended extra hazard pay or only planned to pay out bonuses rather than a regular raise. Kroger plans to give workers discounts at its fuel centers and $100 store credit as a holiday appreciation. 
That's nice, said worker organizers, but we'd like the money. Corkery and Maheshwari write, quote, the issue of hazard pay for retail workers reflects the harsh reality of the pandemic economy, a case of shifting supply and demand. In March and April, when retailers were overrun with customers and workers were calling in sick or quitting, the companies needed to give incentives to employees to stay on the job. But when the additional unemployment benefits, totaling $600 a week, expired at the end of July, many more Americans needed jobs, making it easier for retailers to attract and retain workers, end quote. So in other words, Congress's unwillingness to buckle down and give people additional benefits is allowing companies to rake in profits while keeping wages low. I'm shocked. They continue, quote, as the number of new infections hits daily records, retail workers must spend hours inside dealing with customers who may refuse to wear masks or wear them incorrectly. A large part of this burden has fallen on female, Black, and Hispanic employees who make up a sizable proportion of retail workers. The United Food and Commercial Workers International Union, which represents nearly 1 million grocery workers, said that 108 of its grocery workers had died as a result of COVID-19 and that more than 16,300 had been infected or exposed to the virus. That is, of course, only how many we know of had been infected or exposed to the virus, considering that it is, has been and continues to be in many places very hard to get a test. Even Mitt Romney had proposed giving workers a pay raise, and Congress didn't act. Bosses, of course, the article notes, prefer giving bonuses to raises because bonuses, quote, can be given out at random and do not normalize higher pay, end quote. Though some retailers have, in fact, given raises, Best Buy and Home Depot are named in the piece. Maybe most importantly, though, the unions note that they feel emboldened to make demands, both because of the ongoing big money being raked in by the companies and the public's newfound appreciation of retail workers and other essential workers. There has also been the possibility of states stepping in where the federal government has mostly failed to provide extra money to workers. Corkery and Mashvari write, Absent federal action, some states have allocated funds that they received as part of the giant stimulus package, known as the CARES Act, to frontline workers. In Vermont, retailers are invited to apply for state grants that can benefit their workers who have stayed on the job during the pandemic. Companies like CVS and Shaw's, a regional grocery chain, have signed up for the grants, according to the state. The employers pass the money through to the workers, acting only as conduits, end quote. But even then, some companies refuse to make the effort. One commenter noted, imagine being told by your manager that corporate won't fill out the paperwork that could get you $2,000. Dollar General is one of those that refused, the article notes. Quote, a company spokeswoman initially said Dollar General would not apply for the grants because we believe these limited funds should support the small business community, but then said on Wednesday that the company was looking to apply. Dollar General said on Tuesday that it had spent $73 million on employee bonuses and planned to spend an additional $100 million this year, twice what it had initially planned, end quote. Doesn't say when that initial planning was. And also, just in case you thought they had been generous, the article does note, quote, by comparison, Dollar General spent $602 million repurchasing its stock in the second quarter and has authorized the purchase of an additional $2 billion in stock. That's all we have time for this week. Stay tuned for much more on financialization and unions, essential workers, a green just transition, and work in a pandemic.
Thanks as always go to the folks at Descent for hosting us, to Natasha Lewis and now Colin Kinneborough for editing us, and most importantly, of course, to you for listening to us, for sharing us with your friends, tweeting about us, talking about us, writing to us, and definitely sharing your stories with us. Special thanks to those of you who are sustaining members of the podcast, either at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org slash belabored, or on our Patreon with shiny new rewards over at patreon.com slash belabored. We totally understand because we too are struggling that you may not have the spare cash right now to kick in monthly donations, but if you do happen to and you want to keep us doing labor reporting after as some of the articles we discussed this week noted that people have kind of gotten bored of that brief period of everyone is a labor reporter now, um, it means a lot to us. And we also have, of course, some gorgeous Molly Crabapple worker portraits for the highest tier if you can spring for it. You can always find out more about everything we've talked about today on the Descent website, descentmagazine.org slash belabored. If you want to share your story of work under coronavirus, you can, as always, email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. If you're working in retail or food service, doing construction or working in energy, in schools or caring at home, we want to hear from you. You can tweet at us too at hashtag belabored. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back in two weeks. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag Belabored. <laughs>